0: Father, we're reminded the words of your son in his ministry this morning, when he declared that this people's heart has grown dull, with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears, see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Father, in light of these truths declared by Christ your Son, we are reminded this morning if you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of your word revealed, we are among all peoples throughout all history most privileged. Even those who could see in part, who could hear in part in the past, long for the day that we have now, where your scriptures are complete, where the canon is overflowing with your revelation, where the message of Christ come and the law fulfilled and salvation purchased, complete and in full, is here for us to appreciate in all its glorious detail. I pray this morning as we open your scriptures, that you would open our eyes and would open our ears, and that you would open our hearts to realize the great treasure, the beauty, the power, Lord, the privilege of knowing you through your proclaimed word written on our heart, Lord, understood and heard by those whom you have changed. Lord, I thank you, God, for this time and for this opportunity to do exactly that this morning. We would ask your Holy Spirit to reveal to us your Scripture and to awaken the dead this day. If there are any who fellowship here, who have not eyes to see and ears to hear, may you use your word to awaken them from the slumber of sin, from the death of their transgressions, unto new life in Christ. Lord, and for those of us who have received your great salvation, who now walk in the Spirit, who enjoy regeneration and sanctification, Lord, in increasing measure, And each day that we walk by your side, we pray that you would give us, Lord, affections, joy, an appropriate, Lord, love and respect for your word. We thank you for this time that we have. May you maximize it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. This morning we have the great privilege of opening opening up the scriptures to our psalm of the month, which will be Psalm 80 today, a psalm of Asaph. Would you turn with me in your scriptures there this morning, Psalm 80. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the glorious joy of receiving the answer to Asaph's prayers. May we this morning, that is, Receive the glorious joy, realize the glorious privilege of receiving the answer to Asaph's prayers. Asaph longed for a day that we have received in Christ today where answers to his prayer could be realized upon the resurrected and ascended Messiah. The title of this morning's message is Restoration. There was a cry from the heart of Asaph, and in the words of his psalm, for restoration, for the fulfillment, for the repair, for the fulfillment of what was promised and the repair of what was broken. So with your scriptures open to Psalm 80, out of reverence for the Holy Word of God, would you stand with me this morning as we hear His Word proclaimed in our ears today? Again, Psalm 80, under the title, To the choir master, according to lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. And here we have the holy word of God in verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages, uh, ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you, give us life. And we will call upon your name. Verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 80 is among the Psalms of Asaph that, be, that can be classified as a communal or a community lament. A collective cry. For restoration, a collective cry of anguish for the pain that the nation endures, having fallen from its once great status, now suffering the derision and persecution of its neighbors and losing its power, its standing, its influence among the peoples. The great kingdom of Solomon that boasted influence internationally, that boasted riches and wisdom beyond compare among all the nations of the earth has fallen. Its subsequent kings have left the faith, they have worshipped idols, they have spurned the very source, ground, and foundation of their great influence and majesty, and they have run to the tempting gods of their neighbors. And they have sold short the God of Yahweh, they have sold Him out for the promise of greater riches still, and instead they have reaped judgment. And so in this place of humility and shame, the author Who loves the Lord, Asaph cries out for restoration, restore us once again to our rightful position as a nation called to be a light to other peoples. You remember the covenant made to Abraham. The Lord called out an unlikely individual, a man who had no children until he was up around 100 years old, and a barren wife until that time when God miraculously overruled these forces of nature. And he told Abraham, I've called you to be a light to the nations. He said to him, I will make of you a great nation. There were times in the course of Abraham's life where he doubted the promises of God. Why? Because he was so old and yet without children. He was getting longer in years, long past, especially his wife, the time of conception was a realistic possibility. And as of yet, the promises of God remained unrealized. Abraham no doubt had his days where he doubted for a moment whether it was truly Yahweh who visited him and cut covenant and passed himself in, in cloud and fire between the torch or, and as a torch burning brightly between the pieces of animals, thus confirming that God would sooner let himself be injured before he let his promises go unfulfilled to his servant Abraham. Yet there were those days, no doubt, when Abraham cried, How long, O Lord, before your promise comes true? Well, God's promise did come true. He made of Abraham eventually a great nation. And through kings like Solomon, the son of David, it seemed that the progress of this promise was advancing step by step. But now we see a regression. And this psalm captures this heart of one who wants to see the greatness return to the land, to the kings, to the influence, and to the power of Israel once again. Ultimately, Asaph places his hope for restoration in one man to come, one who would sit at Yahweh's right hand. Spurgeon reminds us of the plight of peoples throughout history. He says in the following words a kind of pattern that he recognizes. Nations, quote, nations rise or fall largely through the instrumentality of individuals. By Napoleon, the kingdoms are scourged, and by Wellington, nations are saved from the tyrant. It is by the man, Christ Jesus, that fallen Israel is yet to rise. And indeed, through him, who deems to call himself the Son of Man, the world is to be delivered from the dominion of Satan and the curse of sin. And so ultimately we see In the summary or in this quote, which summarizes the hope of Asaph that the answer to his prayers would come through the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Psalm of Asaph uh, seems to be structured with two familiar prayers historic to the vitality of corporate Israel in mind. The first is from Numbers 6, 24 through 27. This was Aaron's benediction. It is familiar to us. Aaron was to pray at certain appropriate times, in closing a prayer of blessing on the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. There is a cry that the face of the Lord, the countenance, the smile, the glory, the compassion, the mercy of God, be turned in communication, communion, relationship, and favor upon the people. When this was the reality in the community of Israel, They were in a good place. When the Lord's face was turned from them in judgment, when the Lord's face was turned from them in times like Asaph endured, then there was a great loss and a great cause for concern. The second prayer was one of Moses. And this prayer attended the progress, the advancement of the Ark of the Covenant through the wilderness. We have this prayer recorded in Numbers 10, 35-36. Moses would often pray, When the ark arose to move, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when the ark would return, when it rested, he said the following, return, O Lord, to the ten thousands, ten thousand thousands of Israel. And in these prayers we see that there is a cry for the people to be in the good graces of the Lord and for their station to be secure. Return, O Lord, to the ten thousands of Israel. Moses recognized, Aaron recognized, that without the abiding presence of God, without the continual, continual conditions of his favor met, that it would be a dark day indeed. So when would Israel once again enjoy this favor of the Lord, when the ark was central among them? the favor of the Lord when the priesthood was functional and where godly men filled that office? When would the cries of Asaph be answered in full? Well, we've already answered the question with the arrival of the Messiah, Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 80 looks forward to that day. There is a contrast drawn three ways, may I submit, in Psalm 80 where Asaph uses imagery to contrast the plight of Israel, where they are in their course and His day, and the promise of where they would be according to the covenant. Three images that contrast the promise, the promise and the plight of Israel. Let's consider them this morning. Number one, wilderness procession. In the image of the progress of the people through the wilderness, there is a contrast drawn between the promise that that represented unto the promised land and the plight the position of Israel at the time that Asaph wrote. The second image in our text today is that of a once fruitful vine. Israel is compared to a vine that is transplanted into fertile soil and then thrives beyond your wildest imagination. And this is the second picture. And the third is more interesting still and powerful and more powerful still. The son of sons, you could say, or the son of man. There is a son that's pictured as the stock of the right hand of the Lord, the son whom you made strong for yourself in verse 15. But there is another son still, may I sub- submit, in verse 17. And this is the son of man figure, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. The son of man who would arise from the sons of God, picture or which is a reference to the children of Israel. That is to say, God used the term son to refer to His people, coming out of Egypt, God also referred to the term son to refer to his Messiah who would come, the Son of Man, in due course. And in this picture, Asaph finds hope and also the contrast between the promise and the plight of Israel. So let us consider these more closely this morning. The first image that contrasts the promise and the plight is wilderness procession in verses 1 through 7. Consider these words again. Asaph declares, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. In other words, Asaph is recalling the time when God led his people like a faithful shepherd would through areas of danger, the valley of the shadow of death, as it were, on the way to the promised land of lush uh, fields and flowing streams. Psalm 23 comes to mind as a picture of God leading His people through the wilderness unto the promised land. And in this way, He was a shepherd to Israel. He is crying out to the God who is powerful enough to bring them out of slavery into a land of their ownership and dwelling. And so here He finds promise, but there's also a contrast. Lord, how far we have fallen, Asaph laments, from the time when we trusted and followed you to the time now when we have forgotten your grace uh, to us, toward us and your promises for us and the ground and the foundation to expect those to continue in the future. Therefore, he continues in verse 3, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? In verse 5, "...you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves." There's a comparison and contrast, again, in the experience of Israel being led through the wilderness unto the promised land and where they are in the course of history when Asaph is writing. When is Asaph writing? Well, he's either writing prophetically of a time to come, or he, in fact, lives in a time when the once great influence of Israel has now fallen. Think of the wicked kings who turned to idols. Think of Ahab and Jezebel, times like this, when uh, the influence and the godliness of the people and even the structure of the leadership and the faithfulness to temple worship began to fall into disrepair in Israel. And then what would happen? The Lord would bring chastisement and judgment. The armies from the north, we recall from the book of Nahum that we've considered of late, came and they uh, uh, they conquered the northern tribes. Assyria conquered the northern tribes and then began to threaten Hezekiah and Judea, Jerusalem itself in the days of Sennacherib. This would have been one of those moments where Psalm 80 would have been appropriate. A cry for restoration. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. In the organization of the people of God as they were led out of Egypt, there is language that is referred to in our text today. This imagery, that is to say, is derived from the order of Israel's camp and their convoy. How they were situated when they would set up camp for a time in the wilderness and how they were to travel once they broke camp and continued toward the promised land. You can see this in Numbers 2, 17 through 22. Interesting details indeed. Joseph's brother, Benjamin, and his sons, so that would be these three references associated with Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh were three tribes that camped in a particular location. Think of the arrangement of the camp. In the center, you have the tabernacle, and the Levites, and then all around on each side, to east, west, north, and south, you have the arrangement of the children of Israel. First of all, you have Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. These are to the east, so those three tribes would would park their tents. They would camp to the east side of the tabernacle. Second, uh, down in the south, you would have Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Uh, next to the west you would have these three tribes that we have referenced in our text today, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And finally, in the north, you would have Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. So here you are camped. Imagine yourself in one of those tribes, and you receive the news that in the morning at daybreak, we'll break down our tents and we will begin the procession. We're talking a million plus people, historians figure, and all of their gear, the tabernacle and everything has to be Made mobile, and then begin the journey walking away from their location where they'd camped for this period of time. How would they do it? There were specific instructions according to Numbers 2. The first to break up camp and to pack up and to begin to walk were Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the eastern, uh, the eastern location in the camp, as it were. The second to pack up would be Reuben, Reuben Simeon, and Gad. And after that, the tabernacle. And the Ark of the Covenant would be packed up, would be made mobile, and they would begin to follow that second group of tribes. And then guess who followed the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle? Yes, it was the western encampment, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, and then, of course, followed by Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. As you think of that picture in your mind, go back to our text today. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who led Joseph like a flock. When those associated with Joseph, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, their lineage, the tribes, his brother Benjamin, also son of Jacob, from the beloved bride Rachel. So Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, when they were walking, what were they following on their journey to the promised land? Yes, they were following the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle that had been packed up and was moving out of camp. And you. this reference, therefore, in verse 1, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth, is a picture of a shepherd leading a flock. So Asaph prays to the one who led out these three uh, tribes, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, with his presence there, with the tabernacle going before them. It's a glorious picture, is it not? The shepherd of Israel enthroned on the cherubim shines forth and leads Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh in a picture of a shepherd leading a flock of sheep unto the promised place of provision and safety. This is the picture. In this picture, we have power and authority. There is not just the tenderness of the shepherd, but there's the authority of a king. The shepherd of Israel sits enthroned after all he sits in his seat of authority between the cherubim. It says in the Scriptures, the promise was made to Moses, that when the terms and conditions were met for him to commune with his people, God himself would reveal himself between the cherubim, above the mercy seat, in that very location, Emmanuel. One of the names of God we covered this morning, kids. You recall, what does it mean? What does Emmanuel mean? Somebody? Somebody? God with us. Where was God with us, as it were, in this time in history? God was with His people between the cherubim, above the mercy seat, enthroned in His glorious power and presence with His people as they were in exodus to the promised land. Not only this, but He led them patiently, faithfully, guiding them. "...along the way for 40 years, as a shepherd leads a flock who have a lot to learn and who need to trust him that his way is correct and that he holds within his power, his knowledge and his experience, both the ability and the knowledge to bring them to streams of provision, to fields that will supply their lack. And so the shepherd of Israel, as king and compassionate leader, brought his people as a flock through the wilderness into the promised land. And so to this God, to this Lord, revealed in this way, Asaph prays, Lord, we are lost, as if to say. Lord, we are lost now. We are aimless. We have lost our focus. We do not appreciate the gift of the promised land. But you are the one enthroned who made a place with your people, Emmanuel, God with us, who led us through valleys of darkness. And among enemies who were anxious to destroy us, through these fields of wilderness, where not so much as a stream or wheat or single stalk of wheat would grow, and you provided for us manna, direction, and power to defeat our enemies during this time. And so we pray that you would restore us. The restoration cry is offered to the one who led his people in these dire circumstances, out of captivity into the promised land. This is pictured in this organized encampment and the organized journey that was taken uh, during the Exodus, or that was commanded uh, during the Exodus. This is also pictured in the ark as the habitation for God's presence, wherein he was enthroned upon the cherubim and shown forth, where his face and favor made a way for the people even to have their sins covered over. As it were, in the picture of the old covenant sacrifices. And so, the associations that Asaph is drawing on is God's abiding presence, His kingly authority, His atoning mercies for sin, and His shepherd leadership. These were the images in the wilderness, these were the aspects of God's character, these were the fulfillment of the covenant that Asaph placed his hope in. As if to say, O Lord, with kingly authority, O Lord, who has established the means whereby Your presence abides with Your people, O Lord, who supplies through atoning blood mercy for our sin, O Lord, who led us like a good shepherd through the wilderness, may You hear our cry and restore us again. Now, instead of the manna in the wilderness that the saints enjoyed, that the uh, children of Israel enjoyed on their way to the promised land we see them fed with something else and this and for this reason Asaph cries for salvation verse, verse 5 you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure you make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves and herein lies the contrast Asaph is saying where once we enjoyed manna in the wilderness bread from heaven Bread of angels to fill us with everything we needed for the nutrition and for the food to continue on this journey where you once supplied the bread of angels. Now we are feeding on the bread of tears. That which was once our experience in supernatural sustenance, now we drink in full measure the pain of our apostasy. We drink in full measure the discipline, and the judgment that our walking away from you, our shepherd, deserves. Would you restore us once again? There's also a contrast in the relationship of the people to their neighbors. Whereas before, the people whispered to one another, Did you hear what God did to deliver the Israelites? How He parted the Red Sea and made dry land for them to cross? How He collapsed those walls of water on their enemies? I hear they are passing near our nation. We better retreat, lest their God find us in find us to be his enemy and destroy us, as he did the Egyptians. There was this whispered campaign among the nations to watch out for this band that was traveling through their land. Keep your distance. The Lord has given them power to destroy their enemies. He has done so even by moving earth and sea, heaven and earth to destroy those who would oppose him. But now we see, during Asaph's time, that the opposite is the case. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. Now our neighbors argue with themselves who will get the spoil as they encroach upon our boundaries, unopposed, and take from our stores of grain and otherwise. He goes further, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Do you remember the people once great that we feared who crossed the Red Sea on dry land Now I can go and get my fill from their crops without even picking up a sword. They have become the object of contention, where their neighbors argue over who will get the spoils, no doubt, and they have become the object of derision and laughter and mockery because their once great strength has now been reduced to nothing as God has removed His shepherding hand of protection from their borders, and the enemy now spills over their cities and their fields, to have their way with them. And so we see in this picture of wilderness procession, images that contrast contrast the promise and the plight of Israel. And so it is that Asaph sets the stage for his cry for restoration. Second picture in the text is a fruitful vine, a once fruitful vine. Asaph continues, verse 7, Restore us, O God of hosts, Let your face shine, that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. So here we have this picture of a once great, once fruitful, once dominant planting or vine. This idea of a vine compared to God's people and the nation of Israel is relatively common imagery through the Old Testament. It's common, in fact, all the way back to Genesis 49, which is an interesting reference while jacob is praying a blessing over his children when he comes to joseph who is referenced in our text today with his children and his brother the message is, or the blessing is as follows genesis 49:22 joseph is a fruitful bough a fruitful bough by a spring or bough i should say joseph is a fruitful bough a fruitful bough by a spring that is a vine or a branch a plant that uh is full of sap and bearing fruit it says the archers bitterly attacked him shot at him and harassed him severely yet his bow remained unmoved his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of jacob from there is the shepherd the stone of israel by the god of your father who will help you by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above blessings of the deep that crouches beneath blessings of the breast and of the womb Blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of uh, my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. And so and it goes on to say of Benjamin, he's a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. So here is a, a portion of the promise of the future that Joseph and those associated with him will enjoy. They will be a fruitful bough. They will be a vine that increases in its vitality and gains more and more fruitfulness. They will be victorious over their enemies. They will enjoy the uh, the blessings of good shepherding. The stone of Israel, the foundation, will be among them. But now we see, by contrast, that the once great fruitful bough or the once great fruitful vine has now withered, has diminished. It's been assailed and pilfered. The thieves come in and break down the walls that uh, guard it, and they take freely of its fruit. You brought a vine out of Egypt and drove the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. In these words, Asaph recalls the time when this vine was transplanted. The seed and the, uh, the, the little sprig of growth that was the people of God was taken out of Egypt when it was under slavery and when it is in that place of subjection to God's enemies and carefully carried this small plant, as it were, across the wilderness and then planted it in the soil of Canaan land. And this vine began to grow. It began to sprout and we think of the times in the Davidic kingdom where the roots grew down deep, and where the branches became more stout. And then we think of, as we mentioned before, his son Solomon and his increasing influence, his wisdom and his riches. And now the vine is bearing fruit. And there are people coming from nations around to see what they have heard by rumor of this great vine. So the queen of Sheba arrives bearing gifts and seeking the wisdom of this famous king. And when she comes, she finds that the rumors are only partially true. But in fact, it was far more than she had even imagined. The glories of God proclaimed through the wisdom of the king of Israel at this time. The vine that was transplanted from Egypt was taking root, was growing and thriving. But Asaph marks a time when that thriving growth was numbered and began to reverse. The branches that once, that once spread out to the sea were now broken down or were now being stolen from. The walls that surrounded it, protected it from enemies, were now destroyed. The animals from the surrounding forest, like the boar, ravages it. If anyone has seen how a pig roots in the ground um, over at Joel's place, my brother, he's got uh, pigs and you can tell where they were last year because nothing is growing there. Why? Why? Because the pigs just continually turn up the soil with their snout and their hooves and whatnot, they destroy everything there. They turn it basically into a wasteland. This is the picture of the plight of Israel at this time. The once transplanted vine that grew and spread in its influence has now been trampled and exploited, unprotected, overrun, and rooted up by enemies." This is the image that Asaph draws upon to describe the plight of Israel at this time. We've asked the question and ventured an answer already. When would Asaph's prayer be answered? Was there any hope for this vine in the future? It is no accident that Christ Himself answers this question in John 15. There will come a day when Asaph's cry for restoration will be answered. And when will it be ultimately answered? May I submit to you, when the Messiah arrives, the Son of Man, how does He identify Himself in John 15? Listen. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In this picture of a fruitful vine restored, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and the answer to Asaph's cry for restoration. You see, Solomon was just a glimpse, just a picture a greater than Solomon would come. Jesus Himself identified Himself and His ministry as the greater than Solomon. There was a vine, there was fruitfulness, but it was temporary and it was symbolic at the time when the kingdom had reached its glorious crescendo and apex under Solomon's rule. But there would come a greater King still. This Jesus was King of Kings, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. More than this, This Jesus who had come, the Son of Man on the horizon for which Asaph longed to see, this Jesus was the true vine, and in Him was great abundance, abundance that would not wither but would abound unto eternal life. This was the hope that Asaph sought and cried for in Psalm 80, a vine that could not wither, fruit that would abound eternally, and promises that would be fulfilled and were not subject to their enemies' destruction." or to the apostasy of those who had forgotten the covenants of the Lord and left his worship unattended. Thirdly, the image that Asaph uses to contrast the promise and the plight of Israel, not just the wilderness journey, not just the fruitful vine, but son. Son of sons, if you will. And here we see, by greater glory still, an answer on the horizon to ACES prayer as we think of Christ fulfilling these words. Verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made, whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. First of all, let's notice the sort of chorus for this song. You may have seen that three times, and indeed a fourth, similar words appear. Verse 3. Here's the cry, restoration cry, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. The second reference, verse 7, restore us, the chorus arises from Asaph's psalm again, restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 14 is an echo as well, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. And finally, verse 19, restore us, O Lord, and that's the term uh, Yahweh there, there is an ascendancy of the reference to God unto His glorious covenant, matchless covenant name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. If you look in the original language, and maybe your translation might record the Hebrew this way, restore us can also be translated turn again. It is you could read uh, as follows, turn again, O Lord, uh, to us, let your face shine. Or I'm sorry, that's uh, verse 14. Um, The uh, turn us again would be the reference in verse four. So there's a cry to the Lord in restoration, which also could be translated, turn us again, O God, let your face shine. And then verse 14, there's a, a cry, there's a request that the Lord would turn toward us. This is uh, goes, this correlates with the language of let your face shine upon us. Turn again, O Lord, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, pay attention to us, pursue and restore a relationship with us. And then two more times in the text, the cry for the Lord to turn them again to Him. Restore us or turn us again, O God of hosts. And finally, verse 19, restore us, turn us again, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the language of regeneration and repentance. The Lord changes our hearts so that we would turn to Him. And the Lord, through His Son, Jesus Christ, turns His face to us. And now there is a face-to-face, a before-the-face-of-God restored relationship in salvation enjoyed by God and His people. God, by the sovereign power of His Holy Spirit, changes us. He turns us toward him such that we turn from our sin and repentance and face him and receive his salvation for us. And there is a turning of the Lord from judgment unto favor, and his face shines upon us. And now in this Emmanuel, God with us relationship, restored communion where a sacrifice is provided, there is a turning of faces toward one another. This is the picture that is accomplished through the Son of Man's work that Asaph expected, longed for, and prophesied. Verse 17, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man whom you have made strong for yourself. In other words, there is only one way for us to be restored, turned towards God, and for God's face to be turned towards us so that communion can be restored. That the cry of restoration from Psalm 80 can be fulfilled. And this is in Jesus Christ, the true Son of God. As we see in the context of this passage here, there are perhaps two sons referred to. And this goes back to the reference to the people of God, verse 14. Have regard for this vine. So that would be a reference to the children of Israel. The stalk that your right hand planted. For the son whom you made strong for yourself. Here, Asaph is asking God to look after his son, and in this term, son, he references the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was called the son of God, it was a term to refer to his people. But there is a second son that makes this uh, cry or this prayer possible, the answer to this prayer possible. Verse 17 but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself. So in this chapter, we have perhaps the symbolic Son or typological Son as the children of Israel, and the fulfillment Son, you could say, or the technical term is eschatological Son, the ultimate fulfillment of the picture of sonship, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ in the future. Think of this biblical reference. Uh, In the New Testament, it says of Jesus, out of Egypt I have called my son. You might ask this question, did God call the nation of Israel out of Egypt unto the promised land? Or did God call Jesus out of Egypt to be the son of God and son of man, as it were? And the answer to both questions is yes. When Israel was called out of Egypt unto the promised land, It was a symbol, a type. It was a picture of the Son of Man to come. Where did Jesus go when he was a toddler? He had to flee with his parents to Egypt. And then Matthew tells us that the uh, prophecy out of Egypt, I have called my son, was fulfilled when Jesus traveled out of Egypt back to the promised land, as it were, in his life and ministry. These were the or these were the fulfillment, these events were the fulfillment of what was in shadow form, of what was spoken by prophetic prophecy and song in Psalm 80. The typological Son would give way to the Son of Man. This term Son of Man is how the New Testament refers to Jesus most often. That is to say, it is Jesus' favorite name for himself. Uh, Any of you young people, we covered this this morning. How many times does the the New Testament refer to Jesus as the Son of Man? Whoa, good job. 71. Good job. 71 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. This morning in our study, we're talking about what that means. Does this just mean that Jesus was, yes, indeed, not just fully God, but also fully human? Well, that is a that could be associated with the term son of man, but it is far more. The term son of man is a figure, it is a term from the old covenant that refers to one that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7, the son of man who ascends to the ancient of days, God the son ascending to God the father to receive his kingdom. This is the son of man. Think of uh, Jesus as the Son of Man was also, in a sense, the son of Joseph. Uh, Mary and Joseph uh, had a son, Jesus, although conceived of the Holy Spirit, he was nevertheless in the lineage of David, and as such was the son of Joseph. So these terms become important when we think of Joseph featured in the beginning of our text. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, uh, before Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh. This is the family of Joseph that was re- that is referred to here. Asaph is speaking of a time where a son of Joseph would come who would be the son of man who would return to the position or who would assume the position of shepherd of his people that would be yes enthroned on the cherubim that is shed his own blood on the mercy seat and in so doing establish the Sacrifice for his people's sin and would lead them by the power of his Holy Spirit unto eternal life. We can relate to the experience of Israel being led out of the wilderness unto the promised land in following Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of Joseph, who is enthroned upon the cherub, that is, whose blood was shed upon the mercy seat for us and now ascended before the Father as Son of Man, receiving His kingdom and His glorious rule and reign, has declared victory over sin, over death, over the devil, over sickness, sorrow, and pain, and is leading us unto restoration. Our face has been turned to Him in repentance. His face has been turned to us in His work on Calvary. Thus, the restoration cry of Asaph is fulfilled in the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. This is a lot to take in, I know. But even, and and though we're just touching upon these things quickly, I would encourage you to take some time this week and consider Psalm 80, fulfilled in Christ in its depth and glorious detail. As you do so, these words come alive, do they not? Let your hand be on the man of your right hand. Who is the man of the Lord's right hand? The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Could this not be the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high we see referred to in Hebrews 1? Could this not be the one, it is in fact, who is spoken of in the vision that Daniel saw, who ascends to the right hand of the Father to receive his kingdom? The name Benjamin itself means son of my right hand. It means favored one, appointed one, most important one. The one with the ability, anointed one. Benjamin, son of the right hand. Benjamin was among the favorite sons of Jacob. And in this way, he was a picture of the son of the right hand. Well, there would come one who would be the son of the right hand of God the Father. This was God the Son, Jesus Christ. And upon accomplishing his work, he would fulfill Psalm 110. He would fulfill Daniel chapter 7. And we see him exalted at the right hand of the father in hebrews chapter 1 the fulfillment of the prophecies of old the answer to the cry of restoration from the mouth of asaph so in conclusion we see indeed that these images contrast the promise and plight of israel but they also prophesy of one to come that is the the uh, journey of god's people through the wilderness the fruitful vine that has withered and now cries out to be recultivated and finally all this hinging upon the Son of Man to come. Brothers and sisters, the aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the glorious joy of receiving the answer to Asaph's prayers. If you are in Christ this morning, do you realize, Saint, that you have received the answer to Asaph's cry? Put yourself in Asaph's shoes. The nation is falling apart around you. Enemies are overrunning the borders. At certain points in the history of Israel, the ark itself, the seat of God's presence among them, it was the token of assurance that God was with them. Proof of Emmanuel was stolen by by the enemy armies. Where would hope be then? Upon the theft of the ark of the covenant, the high priest, Eli himself, Aging, rolled over backwards, his neck snapped, and he died. In the failed battle campaign where they tried to use the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck token to overrun their enemies, the future priests, Hophni and Phinehas, they died as well. The priesthood dying, the Ark stolen, the seed of God's presence in the hands of our enemies. No hope for the future. Under these conditions, servants who are yet faithful to the Lord's promises would cry out and lament. Restore us, O God. How can we have hope when our enemies are overrunning our borders, when the Ark of the Covenant is in the hands of the pagans, when the priests are dying and are wicked? Well, there is hope. The hope was on the horizon. The priest who would never be destroyed because by the power of an indestructible life would hold his office forever, the priest Jesus Christ. There was hope in the future on the horizon where God the Son... Who would come, Yahweh in flesh, Jesus Christ, to satisfy the terms of covenant, spilling His own blood and shedding it, sprinkling it, as it were, on the mercy seat. Thus, God would restore the relationship with man so His face could turn to us in in redemption, our face to Him in repentance. We have received an answer in Christ to Asaph's prayers. May we appreciate it this morning. Salvation has come in Yahweh in flesh, Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, called forth out of Egypt through His ministry unto the right hand of the Father. And upon His work of salvation, His face is now shining, not with the veiled glory of Moses of old, but with the unveiled glory that we see a glimpse of in the Scriptures at the Mount of Transfiguration." Where the prophets of old in Moses passed the baton to Christ and his incarnate glory shines forth. It was his blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat, securing our restoration, completing the terms of our relationship, our reconciliation before the Lord. And where is he now? Yes, indeed, he is enthroned. He is enthroned at the right hand of the Father and his face is shining upon the redeemed. And thus, the Psalm 80 restoration cry is answered in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us thank Him in a closing prayer this morning. Father, we thank You that the heart cry of the saints of old has been realized in history with the arrival and completion of the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank You that He is the Alpha and the Omega. We thank You that He is Emmanuel, God with us, King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank You that our communion, our fellowship, our reconciliation is secure in His work on Calvary. We thank You that we have the promised land of glory to look forward to, and we have the assurance of this in the Son of Man's own shed blood. We thank You for these glorious revelations from Your Holy Scripture. Lord, I pray that You would make them real and alive in our heart, and that You would use them to draw the lost unto salvation to know that restoration of a sinner with the holy God is possible only in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is in His name we pray. Amen.